Well, praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. So good to be with you all this morning. Uh, Worship the Lord alongside of you. Let's continue our worship now as we turn to the book of Ephesians and the fifth chapter. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 22. I'm going to read through 27 now. So if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 25. This is God's word. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present her to himself, uh, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the privilege to worship your name congregationally. Uh, We give you all praise and all glory, and we ask that you would be glorified in our time together this morning. Change our hearts uh, through this text, we pray. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. You know, as I prepared for this sermon and began to sit down and write, I looked around my desk, I I realized I had amassed all these quotes and articles from so-called evangelical feminists and uh, modern-day egalitarian darlings. I had them all to share with you here. But then I thought, you know, we have less than an hour with the assembled flock this week, and I don't want to waste anyone's time by reading these nonsensical diatribes and then trying to persuade you of their error from the divinely inspired scripture. Uh, Scriptures which, by the way, were noticeably absent from most of the opinion pieces that now stared me in the face. Scriptures which, when were present in these articles, were so twisted and mangled they would be uh, beyond recognition to the average reader, which is, of course, the intention of these deceivers. Uh, remember the questions that we asked a couple weeks ago. Did God really say? Uh, what is truth? Well, that about sums up the egalitarian position here. So I thought, no, no, this isn't going to be just another lecture on apologetics here. I'm not defending anything this morning. I've gotten a lot of interesting feedback on the last couple of sermons, especially on the transgender sermon, which doesn't surprise me in this culture Uh, we've got a few hours with you, and they've got all the rest. But I thought, you know, I'm just going to do what we always do. I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says about headship and authority in the home and the church. I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says about gender and gender roles. And at the end of the day, if people don't agree with it, well, ultimately they're not disagreeing with me or the other elders or this church, but they're disagreeing with the one who wrote it. So, uh, 
Obviously, the Bible has a lot to say about this topic. The scriptures are both comprehensive and crystal clear right from the beginning, right from the Genesis on matters related to biblical manhood and womanhood. We laid the foundation last week in our time in Genesis chapter 2, the pre-fall foundation, which set the pre-fall standard and established the pre-fall directive for men and women who were created in God's image. Pre-fall, the woman was created as helper, as companion. She was created for the man. She was created from the man. She was brought to the man, and she was named by the man. Pre-fall. So, the distinctions were formed before the fall uh, in Genesis chapter 2, not after the fall in Genesis chapter 3. That's an important uh, distinction. It's important to know that. Right from the very Garden of Eden, we are told that men and women are created equal. Equal, yet different. Equal, yet different. And for a purpose. And it's beautiful when it's rightly understood. It's wonderful when it's rightly understood for both men and women. So let's dive in here. Again, using Genesis 2 as our foundation here, and again, uh, start by reemphasizing that men and women were created equal. They were both created in the divine image of God. They are both co-heirs of the grace of life. They were both given the divine mandate to be fruitful and multiply. They both have spiritual gifts, spiritual abilities. If If you're here this morning and you're saved, whether you're a man or you're a woman, you are delivered from God's wrath equally by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. You are saved equally by your individual faith in the shed blood of Christ. We have bodies that are similar, minds that are similar. God works through both men and women to accomplish his good work, and there is no distinction. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus, in matters of salvation, that is, and equality as a human being before an infinitely holy God. In other words, men are not more human than women, and women are not more human than men, and all are saved by their individual faith alone. But in terms of our roles... In terms of our roles in the home and in the church, we are different. We are different. And because we belong to him, if we truly belong to him, we have an obligation and a duty to be faithful to the roles which God has willed and ordained for us to walk in. And if the quills have already begun to raise by our mentioning the words helper or subject or submission or headship or roles, I want you to do me a favor and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Let's look where headship ultimately began. See if the thought of God's order for man and woman is still an insult to your integrity after we read this here. Uh, Point one in your outlines. In context, just for context, Paul just got done saying, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He exhorts the church to live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, when I come, I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, 
And with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Don't worry about the slander of your opponents, he says. These unbelieving men and women, they'll be destroyed. You are saved. You're going to be persecuted. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters. Chapter 2, verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion fulfill my joy that you might think the same way, by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves, okay? So right from the get-go, this is the approach that believers have to take here, that of humility, one of humility. Let's not come into this with our fists up, okay? Neither man or woman. Let's, as Paul says in verse 4, not merely look out for our own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, here's the main point. Look at these words in verse 5. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see what this passage is saying, my brothers and sisters? Paul is giving us the ultimate example of humility, which was displayed in Christ's willful subjection of himself to the perfect plan of redemption of his Father, of the Father. Christ Jesus is God. He is God the Son. He walked the earth that he spoke into existence as the second member of the triune God. Along with God the Holy Spirit, God the Son is equal with God the Father in terms of authority and power and ability and deity. He is equal with the Father in eternality and essence and glory and worth along with Again, God the Spirit. He is equally unchangeable. He is omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful. In fact, he said, I and the Father are one. He says, the Father is in me, and I in the Father. He said, before Abraham was, I am. How? How could he have said that? Well, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. He dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He was equal with the Father. He existed in the form of God, and yet He had a different role than the Father. He willingly took on the role of a subordinate. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He willingly set aside the privileges of his deity. He didn't set aside his deity, but the privileges of his deity, some abilities of his deity. In humility, he willingly subjected himself to the will of his Father by coming to this earth 
being born of a virgin, where he would take on the form of a slave, be born in the likeness of men, and he grew up living in perfect submission to his father's will. He said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He said, behold, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He said, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Now, let me ask you something this morning. Did the willful subjection of the Son make him inferior to the Father? Did this willful submission to the will of his Father make him any less divine? Did it make him any uh, worth any less in the eyes of the Father? Here's what I'm getting at here. Does being under authority automatically mean inferiority? No. No. And if you answered yes, number one, you've denied the perfect harmony and function that exists between the equal members of the triune God And number two, if this denial is maintained, you will never get headship right. You'll never get it right. And both you and and your family and the church will be harmed in the process. The point Paul is making here is is in Philippians 2 is uh, to both men and women. We need to approach this with humility. Both men and women in the body of Christ... He's saying that Christ Jesus is co-equal with the Father, and yet he voluntarily and willingly submitted himself and took on a lesser position. But you you must understand when he did this, he did it without compromising his divine nature. In other words, he was not inferior in nature. He was just operating willingly in a different capacity or different role, as do the other members of the Godhead. Okay, This is very important. Why? Because it's the premier example of headship in the relationship and roles between men and women who are equal yet different. Equal as human beings in God's image, but different in how we function and operate. Okay? Now we're going to continue this theme here. And to keep us humble, keep us all humble, both men and women, we're going to keep going back to Christ's example here. Okay, we're going to keep going back to Christ, and we're going to keep going back to Genesis chapter 2. Let's go now from headship in the heavens to headship in the household. Okay? We'll spend most of our time here this morning. Point two, headship in the home, headship in the household. With Christ's humility in mind, I want you to turn back to Ephesians chapter 5. Okay? Let's look at this a bit more in depth. Look at verse 15. Paul says, Therefore, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. He says, don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, don't get drunk on spirits. Be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Notice again, we see all members of the Trinity 
All members of the one God on full display, but in different roles. This makes sense. First four chapters of Ephesians, we are told that salvation is based upon the Father's love and His power. Chapter 1, the Father chose us in the Son before the foundation of the world. Chapter 2, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ. God the Son, who we're reminded in chapter 3, willingly subjected Himself to death on a cross, but was raised three days later. The mystery of Christ, which Paul says was now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, who in chapter 4, verse 30, seals us, seals us for redemption. Verses 15 through 20 of Ephesians 5 display the members of the triune God, all equal in authority and yet uh, different in roles and function, including the Son's willful submission to the Father. Verse 21, he says, Now you, men and women, created equally in God's eyes, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That's a general command to all believers, all believing men and women. Be subject to one another, all of us, with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Willingly take on a lesser role in the broad sense of life as a believer living out his or her days on this earth. Subject yourselves to others within the body. And specifically, specifically, chapter 5, verse 22. Look at it in your own Bibles. See it with your own eyes. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be, excuse me, ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church gave himself up for her. So much to unpack here. So, so much to unpack. But I think the best way to do it is, again, by reminding us that this is nothing new. This reality of headship, of authority, of order, divine order. Uh, The word used for head head is the word kephale. It's used in the common sense to mean a literal head on top of a body, but in a figurative sense, to denote one in a position of authority. Paul will explain this in 1 Corinthians 11. Christ is the head, <clears throat> excuse me, Christ is the head, kephale, of every man. And the man is the head, kephale, of every woman. Excuse me, of a woman. And God is the head, kephale, of Christ. Yeah, let's get that straight. <laughs> um. Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. This is extremely significant when discussing the truths of gender role and submission within a marriage because it shows for us that while wives should submit to their husbands, that doesn't mean that husbands assume the position of the true head, who is Christ, okay? In other words, husbands, you are to submit first, to Christ, 
And wives, as an equal believer, you are also to submit to Christ. And a way that you do this is by submitting to the authority that Christ gives to your husband, who is in submission to Christ as to how they are to treat you and to lead you and your family. Okay? This uh, recognition of true headship and the fact that we are all uh, apart from the Father, of course, in subjection to somebody should destroy this imbalance that Chris mentioned, the, these extreme positions that we talked about last week that arise out of the sinful, selfish hearts of men and women in the church. We expect this from the secular world, from the godless culture, from the heathen. We expect them to behave in such a manner, but not professing Christians. May it not be so. Men, uh, may we never mistake the words headship and authority for rule and dominion. Like Vodi Bauckham says, uh, if you have to constantly go around and angrily reminding your wife that she has to submit to you because you're the head, that you're the leader, you're not. Okay? Now, Don't think that I'm up here just coming down on everyone this morning. That's certainly not the case. Uh, Believe me, we all have struggles in marriage. We all have issues in marriage. That's why I like the title of that book, When Sinners Say I Do. Right? Not coming up here hammering all the men here. You realize the sacrifice that I'm making for you here by preaching this in a topical setting, right? I can hear Lindsay a year from now saying, Don't you remember that sermon? This is a tremendous sacrifice. When I say we never mistake the terms authority and headship for rule and dominion, when I say that, it's because we've had men who come into our churches who do just that. Wicked men who realize they can never have any actual influence or or clout in the outside world, but when they come into churches like ours and see what is said in verses 22 through 24, oh, they just love it. They say, I'm the man. I have all authority. Finally, I can act like I'm really something. I need to find me one of these gullible Christian girls to marry. I need to butter her up a bit with my basic Bible knowledge and desire to serve. And when she finally says, I do, why, this is my time to shine. She will have to obey me. She will have to do what I tell her to do. That's what her Bible says. She will have to submit to me in every area, how we handle our finances, how we spend our leisure time, when we have sex, how we have sex, how we raise our kids, what ministries we participate in, where we live, how we live, what we live like. She's just along for the ride here. She's mine. Finally, I've been given biblical authority to carry out the desires of my desperately wicked and sinful heart as I just dominate this woman. And if the church finds out who I really am, I'll just take my family somewhere else and do it all over again. Now, this sounds like a reach. It sounds like a reach. It sounds like some exaggeration for effect, but I've seen it. I've seen it. We've seen it. We've seen this. And we hear about it happening uh, at churches all over this nation, these domestic oppressors and abusers. I'm telling you, everyone looks great on Sunday morning. But sit in our meetings on Thursdays. Go through my phone, look at my texts and emails, then you'll see the real. Now, now thank God it's not prevalent in this church at this time, but it's also not non-existent. But let me ask you, is that what we see here? 
Is that what we see in 1 Corinthians? Is that what we see Paul saying to the Christian man? Is this a license from Paul to dominate your wives? Of course not. Look at verse 25. Okay, Again, this is where guys like this conveniently stop reading. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. How, Paul? How do I love my wife? Well, he tells us, just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. He gave himself up for her. Verse 28, he says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own body. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Yeah, we take care of our bodies. We we feed our bodies. We supply water to our bodies. We dress in comfortable clothes. We sit in comfy chairs. We sleep in comfy beds. We wash our bodies. We dry our bodies. We wash and comb our hair, those who have hair. Uh, We may put on lotion. Uh, we, we, ta- we trim our nails. You know, we take our vitamins. We don't stay out in the sun too long. and We might get sunburn. We might get uh, heat stroke. We don't stay in the snow too long. We'll get frostbite. We'll get hypothermia. In our participation in even everyday activities, we demonstrate how we care for these bodies, which means we love these bodies. We love these bodies. In the same way, Paul says, Christ loves his body. The church, okay? Verse 30, because we are all members of his body. Again, verse 23, he himself is the savior of the body. How much does he love his body? He gave himself up for us. Galatians 1, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Galatians 2, The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He said in verse 1 of our chapter 5 here, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma willing submission to his father to the point of death, even death on a cross. Come on now. How could you possibly gather that wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord means that you get to dominate and oppress her? You you have to twist it. Just like the liberals twist scripture, the liberals you claim to despise, you hypocrites, Repent. Beg for forgiveness from the Lord first. He will forgive you. He may even save you if you've been playing Christian. Then beg forgiveness from your wife and hope that she forgives you in time. Okay? All of us men, we've been given a little bit of authority. Just a little bit. But we are under the authority of the one who gave himself for his bride. 
He voluntarily set aside his divine privilege so that he could come into this world, be born of a woman, to live a, a perfect, sinless, spotless life, only to be delivered over to the hands of lawless men where he would be beaten and spit upon and mocked and scourged and whipped and then nailed to a Roman cross where, worst of all, he would have to be separated from the Father for the first time in all of eternity so that those who truly believe in him would never have to be. As, as he was made to be sin, a curse for many of those who were shouting for his death and generations of sinful men and women throughout the history of the world, his body, his church, he did this for his bride and told you to love your wife in a similar sacrificial manner. And you're telling me that he gave you headship so that you could walk all over her and an oppressor and manipulator and abuser and treat her any way that you feel like so you can come in here and beat your chest and say, I'm something big in the church. You need to get out of here with that nonsense. That's little man complex. No matter how big you are, everyone knows you're little and nobody will want to follow you. That's what the Muslim does. That's what some Hindus do. That's not what Christ teaches. Christ values women. The church values women. Think about the Samaritan woman. Jesus hardly told anyone he was the Christ, yet he told this woman. She becomes one of the first evangelists. This Syrophoenician woman, great was her faith. Mary of Bethany, she, she breaks a perfume jar pours it all over his feet. The disciples, they become indignant. The silly woman, you wasting that. We could have given this to the poor. Jesus says, leave her alone. Knock it off. She's done a beautiful thing. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman did will also be spoken of in memory of her. And here we are again talking about her. I think there's such a thing as hyper-headship. Okay, it's like hyper-Calvinist, which people always accuse us of being, and we think it's damnable, it's heretical. We say we're not hyper-Calvinist. But I think there's such a thing as hyper-headship. Okay? Guys get a bit of authority, and they use it to dominate and abuse their wives and children. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. Love them. Care for them. He says in Colossians, don't be harsh with your wife. Peter says in the third chapter of his epistle, show her honor. Esteem her as a fellow heir of the grace of life. The wife is the glory of the husband. Then he says, if you don't honor her and treat her right, guess what? Your prayers will be hindered, okay? God won't hear you. And again, we have, we've had guys who come into this church who have been called out on it, who leave the church, drag us through the mud, drag their families out of here, and yet nobody follows them. You can see the fruit of their lives now. Husbands, love your wives. Lead with love. Now, wives, go back to verse 22, okay? Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Again, he's not your Lord in the sense that he supersedes Christ in your willing submission, if he asks you to do something that goes against Scripture, something that puts you or your kids in any kind of immoral danger, don't do it. But 
If he's a man who is in clear submission to his Lord and seeking the Lord's will, even if it's been really, really difficult, and I know it can be, you are called to submit to his headship. You submit. Like Christ, you voluntarily and willfully submit to his direction and plan for your marriage and family. And, and if it goes bad, if it goes wrong, endure for Christ's sake. The Lord knows. He knows. Let your husband take the lead. Encourage him. Help him. Uh, support him. Don't beat him down. Don't, don't always seek to usurp his authority. Don't seek to lord over him and put yourself as, as the head of the marriage and the family. It will end in disaster because it goes against the divine order. Trust the Lord. Because on the other extreme, we've had women who have dominated their husbands as well, and we can see it. It's so obvious. And they do it. They use a distorted interpretation of texts like this and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 and Galatians and Colossians and 1 Peter and Titus and 1 Corinthians saying, no, 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 we are equal in all things in salvation and function and role. We are co-leaders, only to see them inevitably become the leader of the leadership team. Like Sarah said to Abraham, sure, called him Lord, but also said, you know what, just go into Hagar. Let's get this show on the road. You know, Ishmael was born, he caused all kinds of problems for generations and nations and everything, and we see the same thing today, right? This type of thinking is pervasive throughout Christendom. There's one author I read, uh, the, the book Biblical Foundations of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. He said this, listen to this. For over 18 centuries, 1,800 years, uh, the church was confident that it understood this text and other biblical texts central to the Christian concept of marriage and gender relationship. Okay? 18th centuries. The church's leading pastors, theologians, and exegetes held that Ephesians 5 taught mutuality and service within the structure given by the leadership of a husband and a father. 1,800 years. The church judged Ephesians 5 and other passages such as Genesis 2 and 1 Timothy 2 Difficult to perform, perhaps, but not difficult to understand. Difficult to perform, perhaps, but not difficult to understand. A handful of Christians began questioning this consensus in the 1800s, but the onslaught began with the onset of feminism a few decades ago as it often does, the church started to echo a new cultural movement by adopting the questions and sensibilities of feminism about a decade after its arrival. Theologians then began to read teachings about submission and leadership in new ways. Not surprisingly, feminist interpretations of Ephesians 5 started to appear in commentaries around 1970. Now it's, it's, it's the predominant view within mainstream evangelicalism. Now we have it in our Christian bookstores, Christian news sites, Christian colleges, seminaries. Denver may be the worst, by the way. And most tragically, uh, most tragically of all, we, we begin to hear this egalitarian feminism uh, preach from our pulpits and our churches. And it's not good for women. And ultimately, they suffer for it. The women are the ones who suffer for it. In the same way that the little man uh, ignorantly brings destruction to his family and the church by 
abusing his God-given authority as head of the home. The pride-filled woman who seeks to usurp the authority of her husband is doing similar harm by acting in the same ignorant manner. Uh, now, this could be a result of two things, okay? Number one, weak men. Weak, passive men in the church who have been fed this nonsense we just read about their whole lives on their phones and their computers and their TV screens and on the campuses of colleges who now have no ability to lead their families in a Christ-like way, and forcing the woman to lead out of necessity. She says, do something. Be a man. Okay, I, I guess I got to do it. I'm going to raise the kids. This is how we're going to do this. And she becomes the head. Or women can just do it out of sheer pride and arrogance as they believe the lies spewed out by this corrupted and cursed society. Oh, I'll just do it. Men are idiots. I know what's best here. He always makes the wrong decisions. I have to take charge here. You know, S. Lewis Johnson told the story of a woman who led another woman to the Lord, and she showed her the biblical principle of submission. So she went home to her husband and said, Okay, you are my Lord and Master, you big fat slob. What do you want me to do? <laughs> but that's not God's design, not for the man or the woman. This resentment, this spirit of resentment starts to breathe uh, or starts to manifest itself, the spirit of uh, competition even. It's from the enemy, from our own sinful hearts. We're not competitors. In fact, we're united. We are one flesh as husband and wife. That's how Paul ends this, by the way. He goes back to the foundation in verse 31. Not Genesis 3. He goes back to Genesis 2. Here's the model. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. We're not enemies here. We're not on opposite teams. We're one flesh. The mystery is great. Then he goes on to tell you what the mystery is. I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. We are all members of one body. Willful submission to the Lord, who is Christ. You see this? So women, don't resent your husband. Try to take his rightful position as the head. You're not the head. Help him. Pray for him. Encourage him. And it's our responsibility as elders to do this, by the way, as well. Uh, train men to be fathers and husbands. Encourage them. But you don't resent him. Don't kick him while he's down for Pete's sakes. Help him up. Again, think of Christ. Okay, think of Christ. Did Christ resent the Father's authority when he came into this world? When he sent him into this world, God sent his one and only son. Did, did Christ resent this and like, oh, Father, you really lost it. You don't know what you're doing. These people are awful. They are unworthy of this. I'm just going to create some worshipers out of the stone. We'll get on with this new heavens and new earth stuff. Is that what he said? No, he didn't say that. He, he willingly subjected himself to the leadership of the Father because he knew that the Father knows best. In the same way, the believing wife submits to her believing husband, not because the husband knows what's best for their family, but because the, so because the sovereign Lord, who, is, who the husband is hopefully in submission to, knows what's best for the family. You see this? 
She submits to him because he submits to the Lord. We submit first. The man submits first. Then she submits. Men protect. God built us this way. Men provide. Men lead, practically speaking, spiritually speaking. Women support and help and encourage and follow. We complement each other, right? We complement each other. It's beautiful. Man includes women in major decisions. You include your wives in major decisions and, and minor decisions and all the things that we mentioned earlier, finances, children, where we live, where we work. But at the end of the day, he has 51% of the vote. That might be a good way to put it. He's the head. You can see how important this is, uh, why it's worthy of further study here. 50 minutes, we can only begin to scratch the surface. I encourage you, though, continue to look at this. Okay, continue to look into this here. Grab Alex's book on the way out. We've given it away a few times. Take one. Take one for some other couples that you know. Give them away. Uh, but husband's wife, take it. Read it together. Or as a single, as you're praying for a spouse, listen to sermons by reputable preachers. S. Lewis Johnson, Martin Lloyd-Jones, John MacArthur, Paul Washer, Vody Bauckham are all excellent on this subject. Let's, so I would encourage you to do that. Now, let's quickly touch on the headship in the church, okay? But the principles are the same. Folks come into a church like ours, and they think, oh, my word, this is some kind of cult. You got male preacher, you got male elders, male service leaders. We have an open time in our Lord's Supper service where the men stand up and they pray on behalf of their families, on behalf of the congregation even, which, by the way, men, stand up. Don't be scared, I mean, you're just, you're, you're interceding on behalf, you're, you're praying for your family, your wife, your children, this congregation, we need you to pray for us. We're, nobody's looking for a sermon. If, don't, be, don't be intimidated. In fact, we don't even want a sermon. Lord, thank you for emptying yourself, giving yourself for us. Amen. Uh, but people come into this place and they think, oh my gosh, what kind of place is this? Some people won't even step foot into churches like ours because they've been taught that we're misogynists that we're Neanderthals, just walking around with one, a club in one hand and our head-covered women in the other, just dragging them behind us wherever we go. But that's not true, is it? No, no. We hold women very, in very high regard in this church. We just seek to do so in the way that the Bible commands, including in the area of biblically ordained roles, okay, which this culture hates. But you see, when you try to go around the biblical mandates for men and women, what you're actually doing is devaluing women by trying to make her into something that God didn't intend her to be. Okay? The men are the leaders in the church. Jesus was male. His apostles were all male. If there would have been any opportunity for make a bold declaration and revolutionary impact on the equality of the sexes in church leadership, it would have been to have a female apostle. Right? Or elders. But he didn't. In fact, his inspired apostle said this if man desires if if a man desires the office of overseer and likewise the deacon, you know, they should be husbands of one wife. This is just a biblical model. It, but you gotta understand that elders are also men who are under his authority and headship. So we can't abuse the bride either. We're just under shepherds of the chief shepherd. 
We have a divine mandate to treat the flock with compassion as we lead them and feed them and care for them and protect them, providing them with the truths of God's word, even if it doesn't fit in with modern-day human philosophy and practice. We still do it his way, okay? Paul is clear in his first letter to Timothy. A woman must learn in quietness and all submission, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but remain quiet. Then he goes back to Genesis 2, for it was Adam who was formed first, then Eve. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into trespass. So what does this mean here, Paul? A woman has to come in here and never talk. Again, like the Muslim, she has to come in here dressed in drapes and uh, keep her mouth shut. Of course not. It just means that the man is the representative of the family in the church. That's all this means here. They had a big problem with the, in the church in Corinth, okay? The, the feminist movement was running rampant, just like it is today. Women were refusing to get married, or if they do get married, they would refuse to have children. Women started dressing like men. They started trying to get involved in positions of influence, typically reserved for and held by men, purposely going into areas and events only reserved for men in direct defiance, even as one commentator mentioned, forming groups to go out into bare-chested pig hunts in an emboldened display of their attempt at bringing equality to the Roman city. That'd be a sight. Now, of course, this bled into the church, as it always does. And this church, during Paul's time, it was all made up of new believers, including many of these feminists who would they'd stand up in the service, they'd rip off their coverings, they'd expose their shaved heads. This was another sign of feminism. And they'd do this week after week after week. They'd disrupt the meetings, and they'd seek all this. They, they'd do it in this grandiose fashion. And they would do so many times as their husbands sat there right next to them in shame. Paul says, listen, women are not to speak in the assembly or exercise authority over a man during formal worship. Not when the church gathers together. Is it because they are inferior? No. Is it because they're not as smart? No. In many cases, I would say that a woman is more spiritually sensitive than men. At least Eve thought about not taking a bite of that fruit. It appears Adam just went, okay, <laughs> ate it. Or, you're pretty, you know, <laughs> like we all do. But they both fell equally. But Adam was the head. He was the head of the whole human race, in fact. So we all fell. We waited for the next head, who was Christ. Okay? It's not because women are inferior or not as spiritually strong. Many times throughout my years in the assemblies, I would have longed for a woman to stand up compared to some of the things that I've heard men say. Now, we've got a lot of strong, mature brothers here in our congregation. It's not a problem, but I'll put any of the women in here right now, many of the women in here right now, up against most men in evangelicalism today. Light or crystal. We've got some very strong women, and they're, they're floundering out there in modern-day American evangel and evangelicalism. Uh, many of our women who are very faithful, they have a, a gigantic impact on this body through teaching and discipling, mentoring other women, children. 
They serve in many other significant ways. A, a woman's not exercising man, exercising authority over a man is not because of inferiority or weakness or incompetence, and it's not because that's the rule of this church or these elders. It's just because God said so. He sets the standards, okay? And if that's not good enough for you, you're not going to be happy here. Anyhow, we're going to draw this to a close. <laughs> I quickly realized how much more we could speak on this, uh, especially in the household of God. It was foolish to think that I could just do this in two weeks. I should have listened to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> So much more could be said on this, okay? Please don't hesitate to email any, any of the elders or meet with us or call us. If you have any questions, you need counsel or you'd like some recommendations on other resources. But I want to end with this charge, okay? I want, you to, I want to charge you to take this topic seriously. It's, it's beautiful, okay? It's wonderful when it's done right. If you're here this morning and you're married... If you've discovered there's an imbalance in your perspective, I would encourage you to take this seriously. Okay, read these texts together. Ask forgiveness where you may have fallen short. Start over. Start over today. His mercies are new every morning. Let's talk about it. Let's be honest about it and seek to walk according to his word and his will. When it comes to biblical manhood and womanhood, when it comes to this topic of biblical headship, which is a very contentious topic, I would just ask that you approach it, whether you're young or old or married or single or divorced or in the church, in the home, wherever, that you would remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the humility of Christ and have a sincere heart, genuine desire to do his will, his way, for he is worthy of our obedience and our submission. Amen? Amen? Amen. And he is worthy of, the, of our praise and adoration, so let's do that now. We'll have Noel come up and lead us in song. Our Heavenly Father, what a joy to submit to our head. The King of kings, Lord of lords, and the head of the, ch the church, your body. It's a difficult topic, Lord, as you know, but you have given us the prescription. You've given us your word. And for that, we're tremendously grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.